interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal 2, Chelsea 1, Adelaide Crows 50, North Melbourne 119, Brisbane Broncos 26, Cronulla Sharks 36, Rory McIlroy 1 under par, tied 47, Tommy Fleetwood 3 under par, tied 35th. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Well, 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 Rory, a sliding doors moment in the history of Arsenal Football Club is what I said to you when the full-time whistle blew on uh, on Saturday. I felt like for once in the FA Cup final or any big game, that uh, and maybe this is just the Arsenal fan in me, that when sort of things go horribly wrong to one team in a final and all the decisions and injuries and everything go against them, we always seem to be on the receiving end of that. But but not this time round, a, a 2-1 victory and uh, despite, you know, maybe getting the rub of the green, a well-deserved victory for the Gunners. Yeah, yeah, I was so chuffed this weekend with Arsenal. They're kind of finally giving us something to cheer, but no, very happy. And, and actually, I feel like, for Arsenal, just the FA Cup's now our competition, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Won it for in the last seven years. It, it, it's the most important cup to win. It's the one you really want at the end of the day. Well, it's the one that everyone has a, everyone has a possibility to win. You know, every person, every team in the land has the chance to win it. So so you, you clearly can say when you win the FA Cup, you're the best team in the land. It's, there's no two ways of looking at it. Yeah, hear that, Liverpool fans? Hey, absolutely. But as, as I said... I really do think this is a, a, you know, if we had lost this game, I say we, if Arsenal lost this game, then it was real, real backs against the wall, real, real doom and doomsday time because no European football, um, you know, the, another year further removed from winning a title and being competitive and, and wouldn't he be involved in Europe? And at a time when, Teams are getting stronger and teams are moving further and further away. No European football to draw kind of, well, let's be realistic. It's not going to be big, big names in, but reasonable signs of names into the club with with a, with a manager who's just starting out. You know, we haven't got a big name manager to help potentially pull some people in. You know, European football was an absolute necessity. Yeah, for sure. And for the reasons you just said, but also for the fact that he's an extra 40 million quid. And at this time with everything that's happening in the financial side of football right now, 40 million quid would make a massive difference. That That's a player. That's a player of pretty decent quality if you do the right business. And especially you hope that players might be going a wee bit cheaper in this window because clubs are struggling financially and they aren't going to maybe be able to realise that people can't afford the high money and they also need to get the money in, into the club themselves. So you think 40 million quid, that at least get you one decent player, if not two decent players, if you spend it correctly. But I think, Saturday's performance just highlighted that actually the most important piece of business for Arsenal this summer is is keeping Aubameyang, not only for the quality he brings that team, but I think you can you can safely say that if if he signs a new contract, Arsenal again can turn around to the players they're looking at, whether it's Musa Dembele, whether it's um, the Atletico Madrid holding midfielder. Partly, it's, you can say, well, we've got a new manager, new managers come in, they won the FA Cup, we've just signed Aubameyang on to another two years or three years or whatever it's going to be. Like We are serious about building a team and moving forward and becoming a competitive side in European football again. And you can safely say that to players now. Where didn't win the FA Cup, you can't see Aubameyang staying. I mean, I don't know if he's going to stay anyway, but you definitely couldn't see him staying if he weren't in Europe. And then suddenly, what what's the attraction for players anymore? So I think it's huge. I think it's it now, obviously, the right things have to happen over the next few months to kind of turn this moment into something that is actually defining. It's not defining yet. It's only potentially defining. But I said that potential is now there and it's now over for the people at Arsenal to make it defining in the, in the coming months. Yeah, well, you mentioned the word quality there with Aubameyang and... and... Two other bits of quality you want to talk about. First of all, is the quality guest we've got coming on later, Jane Nisbet, uh, former 
high jump star with in Scotland uh, with Commonwealth Games. Uh, also holds a, Brit- a Scottish indoor record in the triple jump. Comes to speak to us uh, about her journey through sport. Uh, very interesting to hear Jane's story. Uh, she certainly had to do it the hard way, and she's very very open about her trials and tribulations. So uh, later on the podcast, we'll be hearing from her and uh, and, and and her career she had. You mentioned the word quality there with the Bamiang, and both the Brisbane Broncos and the Adelaide Crows could have a player of that quality in their respective sports. Another two sound thrashings. Uh, we don't need to delve into them, Rory, but I just, what, what's happening down under? Well, the Broncos actually were in that game for quite a long time. I, I, I couldn't watch it, but I was getting the updates, and it was kind of Cronulla score, Broncos score, Cronulla score, Broncos score, and it was kind of, it was only, obviously, it was a 10 point loss in the end, but it was only, it was a late try from Cronulla that made it up to 10 points. and Broncos were kind of within four or six throughout. And you thought, oh, maybe we have a chance here. But they, they, they just don't know how to win those Broncos. No, it's 2020. So um, we will move on quickly. Um, and uh, we heard Tommy Fleetwood mention there, you know, sort of we both have golfers we follow closely. Rory's very much a Rory fan. And, and, and Tommy Tommy's my guy. I really like what how Tommy goes about it. Neither of them uh, managed to get into the, the top 10 uh, this week um, over in Memphis in the World Golf Championship. But someone who did was Justin Thomas. He, he, won, the, he won the event over there, which catapulted him back above John Ram to number one in the world. Since coming back from the COVID break, Justin's form has been incredible. And, and what a way to set him up into going into this week's PGA Championship at TPC uh, Harding Park in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, well done to Justin Thomas. I think we've got... We can see in golf now we've got this kind of grouping of top players, uh, which I think will kind of be bouncing around sharing the number one title for a while because it doesn't seem to be one in particular that's kind of going to run away with it. But you kind of Rory, John Ram, Dustin Johnston, Justin, Justin Thomas, they're kind of going to be potentially sharing it about depending who's playing well at the time. But I don't know, It it this might be me, but it doesn't feel quite right, if that makes sense, because... Because it's COVID, because not all the golfers have been able to play the amount of tournaments they would like to play, because we've not had the major championships that we would have had. Obviously, we've got one coming up this week. and But these like big kind of point world ranking events, it, it doesn't feel quite like right that Justin Thomas is the world number one yet. I don't know if this is me just not quite, just getting how my head's working with it. And we've seen the European Tour come back recently, but it's not coming back with the same vigour that it would have been before. So, I mean, well done to Justin Thomas. He's a fantastic player and he is worthy to be the best in the world. But it just doesn't feel quite like the same as when other players have done it in the past in this kind of COVID golfing world that we're in right now. Yeah, I guess. I also kind of feel a lot of the way you might feel is what you kind of said there is that when you think of world number ones, you, you immediately think of people like Roger Federer, Tiger Woods, people like that who have done it and held it for weeks and years on end, and they are the number one. But we're in this place with golf right now, which I actually love that there isn't a out and out person running away with it, and it's a case of if you beat them, you will win a, a tournament or what have whatever have it. It makes the sport so much more exciting. It makes it so much more enjoyable. Yes, I, I do agree with an element of what you're saying about with the COVID scenario and, and not not all players accessing or being in a position to access tournaments due to you know their own potential health or family health or or being able to travel to America, etc. We talked about that with the US Open um in the tennis world. But I love the way where golf is at the moment is, you know, in there, you didn't even mention people like Jordan Spieth. You didn't mention people like, uh, you know, a little bit off the pace, but Francesco Molinari, Tommy Fleetwood himself. You know, there's, there's millions we're missing out on you. People, you look at how uh, Murakawa and, uh, um, you know, how they're coming onto the scene, these young golfers. It's not a case of a one person show anymore. And, And that leads to a fantastic product being put on the course. Yeah, I know, 100%. I think it's a much more exciting way to have it than just having one person dominate the game. At least, I mean, it is nice sometimes seeing one person who is just so good and it is kind of awe-inspiring, but in terms of competitiveness long-term, you want to have lots of top top players who, who all can win competitions. just frustrates me that most of them are American, I guess, as well. Yeah, well, it's... I think we can all be frustrated by that this side of the ponds, but it means when we beat them in the Ryder Cup, as we seem to have been doing more and more regularly, it makes it, it makes it that much sweeter. It makes it that much sweeter. And and in the world of boxing this this week, we saw we saw a, a very sweet story coming out. Uh, Eddie Herm, I believe, put a boxing ring in his uh, in his back garden. 
Yeah, I mean, this was, I think, for me, the kind of biggest sporting story of the week and just the kind of how, how one, how 2020 this is and two, how innovative and imaginative this has been from Eddie Hearn. And it is very much a statement of, look at me, I'm Eddie Hearn. This is like my ego brashness. I can throw about a month's worth of boxing in my back garden. But actually, I think it's it's a great thing for the world of boxing, which is very ego-driven world. So basically, Eddie Hearn's childhood home in, in, Brent, in Brentwood in, uh, in Essex has been turned into the matchroom headquarters, which is Eddie Hearn's company and the headquarters of his boxing company. So it's not home anymore, but that's only been the last couple of years it happened. And it still very much looks like a mansion, looks like a home, and it's got a big back garden area. And to facilitate boxing coming back from COVID, which hasn't come, been on since March, they had to create a bubble, uh, like we've seen in a lot of sports. And Eddie Hearn decided that the best place for the bubble was within his own mansion. So he created a boxing ring in the back garden. He put kind of a roof on it, and there's pyrotechnics, and there was lights, and there was fireworks. But kind of the backdrop was his this massive, amazing kind of Essex mansion, and it was fabulous. It was great to see. It was, I thought, it was a very different and innovative way to kind of bring back sport. And we saw a fantastic fight on Friday night and there's going to be more fantastic rights and Dylan White's coming in a big heavyweight fight to, to end the month there. But I just think, Ali, now we're going to be seeing sport without fans for a while. Are we going to have to see sports getting more innovative with how they put on sporting events? Not only because being able to put them on in general, but also we've seen football without fans. We've seen cricket without fans. We've seen golf without fans. And I think everyone agrees that it is a, it's not as good a product. It's not as good an experience. Now, of course, you're never going to match 100,000 people in Wembley watching a big boxing fight or wherever it is to talk about doing fights in Tottenham Hot Stadium or in Vegas or whatever. But it, it certainly felt much more of an event than any of the other sport we've seen recently. So do you think people need to look at what they've done in boxing and say, well, is there any way we can be more innovative, more creative with how we put on our sport to make it feel like more an event, even though it doesn't have fans in? I think any way we can get live sport and make it work in these times is is a win. Um, Eddie Hearn has the, uh, has the luxury of having a ridiculous amount of money behind him mm-hmm, yeah. and a monopoly pretty much in the industry of boxing. The thing for me is that there's probably not a huge amount of sports out there where has that expendable cash flow available to them. And, and with TV deals, with the commercialization of partnerships and sponsorships that make the world of professional sport tick it's just not going to be possible because most sports that we are waiting to come back that don't have a capacity to come back in some sort of way are more team sports orientated um you know golf yes we miss the fans but it's functioning pretty well in the over in america certainly so the european tour has to catch up um you know, boxes come back, you know, so it, it's the contact sports like rugby and American football and, you know, big team sports, which are more kind of adrenaline driven, either contact or team sports that need the kind of crowds to play their part. And actually, I, you know, yes, we miss the fans, but I don't think the fans, I think people have made too much about there not being fans in the stadium. The Premier League has been god awful. And I think. The players and the managers in the Premier League have to have a serious look in the mirror. Because if you actually watch how the championship was, the quality of the championship and the competitive nature of the championship was played on its return was much closer and much similar to what you would find on a normal Saturday in a quote-unquote normal season. And and that's not just the teams like Leeds and West Brom pushing for the top of the teams. Of that was throughout the entirety of the championship. And we know the championship is a very different league to the majority of leagues across the world. But actually, if you're looking at what, what was being put on display in terms of a product, there was no fans in the stadium at championship games. Okay. There's, you know, certainly for a lot, there's a lot more teams in the championship that have less on the line because of that massive volume of the middle of the league that uh, by this stage of the season can't go up and can't go down. But yet, they were, the product and the football that was being played was, was outstanding quality for the level it's played at. The Premier League, like, the players need to look at themselves. It's not You don't suddenly have to find innovative ways to make it function. That's, I'm sorry, that's the players' responsibility. That is their job. Their job is sports athletes. And within that, 
sport is an entertainment industry. And yes, it's about winning and everything that comes with that. But they have to find a way in themselves and the managers have to find a way to galvanize them to actually make it a decent product, not rely on having the crowd noise to make it so. I think that's fair. I, I, I'm going to sleep disagree with you slightly in the fact I didn't think the Premier League was god-awful. I thought it wasn't up to the usual standard, but I think we saw moments where it was still entertaining and still a good product. And I think it got much better as teams got fitter, they got sharper and they got used to the environment. But I do, I, but I do agree at the same time that as a player and as a professional, your job is to go out and put in the best performance you can and to fight for everything, to fight for your team, to fight for the result, to to give your all to win that game or to be in that in that environment that you've been put into. And that doesn't matter if you're in League Two, Championship, Premier League, or if you it doesn't even have to be football, whether it's rugby, whether it's anything, whether it's cricket, golf, as a professional, you are getting paid to to give your all. And if players can't motivate themselves to to do that, then you you gotta question the players. I get your point there, but I also think that at the same time, you you said it yourself, Ali. It is an entertainment industry, as well as it is a, a a sporting industry. It's an entertainment industry. Now, people would still agree. I think most people would agree that yes, the championship was much better in terms of being close to the quality, but it still wasn't as entertaining as it would have been with fans, because what the fans bring to the spectacle of watching the game. And I think I also think we've forgotten how important fans are, because I chucked on Sky Sports. I think I may even turned the television Sky Sports was on. And it was showing an old game. I think it was Chelsea beating Man U in 1999, 5-1. And just actually watching it with fans in and seeing the reaction of the fans to the big moments, the kind of limbs in the stadium when the big goals went in. And I just forgot that existed within football. And I think until we get that back, we're actually going to forget how actually much we have missed it. So yes, I agree that, that the players need to give more, but at the same time, it's an entertainment industry and that entertainment is not going to be the same until fans are back in the stadium. So then you start thinking, well, where can we be innovative in a more entertainment format rather than a sporting format to make this spectacle more enjoyable, like Eddie Hearn has done by creating such a unique environment for boxing. And yes, obviously all sports are different and boxing is a sport that you can do that. We've seen some fun things in darts, like darts from home, which has actually been really fun to watch and interesting and different, but I think that there is potential to say, well, yeah, how can we be innovative in entertainment ways? This is an entertainment industry, as you said, to try and make sport more enjoyable. I just think it's gimmicky. I really do. I just think it's gimmicky. I think I haven't, I haven't watched any of the darts from home. I didn't see the boxing fight nights. But uh, yeah, you know, it's a, uh, you know, there might be a novelty value to start with, but I think it becomes, I really do think it becomes gimmicky. You know, the entertainment element of the industry is the is the sports men and women competing against each other it's not what you put around it it's it's actually what's going on between the white lines between the ropes and the ring between the in the swimming pool whatever it might be so you can get innovative and and, and try all these different sorts of platforms and and formats and yes you know in covid times you don't have to do that but but fancy through that eventually and and it becomes a bit of a gimmick and it becomes a bit of a bit of a joke now i do know what you mean if you're kind of watching you know games about the the, the spectators and limbs in the air when goals were scored you know i as a as a fan of of certain teams when my team scored a goal or a try put a try or whatever else i haven't celebrated any less in my living room than i would have done if there'd been fans there if there's been a stunning piece of fielding or a incredible goal or, or, or a save or passage of play or a, a shot in golf I suddenly haven't gone and given as much emotional response to that of, of a wow and amazement because there isn't any fans in the background doing it may, maybe I'm by myself or, or in the in my minority here but it, the responsibility is on the players it, it, it's, and, and the athletes go out and do your job and yes covid times it's a bit rubbish but still for me when something amazing happens i've reacted exactly the same oh, but, I, but you said for your team and i agree with that for my team i've reacted the same because they're my team it's when you've been watching other teams that aren't your team yeah but that's what i'm saying is that i, I was watching the golf the other day and i can't even remember who it was hit a, a hit a, a, had no loyalty to him i can't remember who it was hit a five words you know onto a onto onto a lake green on a par five 
you know, to, to four inches for an, for an eagle putt. You know, I've been watching games of German football where it wasn't any of my teams and there was a, a goal scored from 35 yards into the top corner. I didn't suddenly, you know, not go, oh my God, or oh wow, and kind of jump off my seat watching those particular moments, even though it weren't my team any less because there wasn't a, a crowd there. Or, you know, if you kind of make, if that, had, you know, if there'd been some sort of, virtual or different arena created i wouldn't suddenly think oh that's great i just think yeah you know it might be interesting for a while to replace fans but ultimately they're gimmicks and it's over to the athletes to put a show on well moving from one eddie to another um we saw this week in the premier league eddie howe one of the longest serving he might even been the longest serving manager at a premier league club although he weren't a premier league club anymore moved part ways with bournemouth interesting conversation I heard on on the radio today about this Rory was that a pundit had made the point that Steven Gerrard the Rangers manager and former Liverpool and England uh, legend some would say if he was offered to go to the Bournemouth job and replace Eddie Howe that would be a bigger job than staying at Rangers and having the Rangers job and this has sparked a bit of a debate so let's take sort of Eddie Howe and and Steven Gerrard and Rangers and, and Bournemouth out of this as a whole lower league Premier League clubs and sort of top-end championship clubs and SPL clubs. You're a manager. Where would you rather manage? I think, first of all, you can't take Bournemouth and Rangers, etc. out of it because if it was Rangers versus Bournemouth, I'd rather manage the Rangers, especially right now because, one, being the manager that stopped Celtic's turn in a row would be, I think, one of the biggest stories in British football. I think having the opportunity to manage in the Europa League would be one of the major draws of being able to be in Rangers. And also managing a club with that fan base and that passion and that support just makes it that kind of exhilarating and excitement and that kind of thriving energy that you would get as being a manager. Well, actually, I think the the argument was that Bournemouth, that I, I saw the thing you're talking about. He basically said, well, Bournemouth are now a big club because they've been in the Premier League for so long. And I think, well, if Bournemouth are still in the Premiership, then, then yes, I might agree with that because you say, well, they've been in the Premier League for I think it was seven, five or seven years or whatever it was and they're in the Premiership and you can come in and you have the opportunity to turn them in from a bottom half of the table Premiership club to a one that might then compete in the Europa League. But now Bournemouth are in the Championship as a club who haven't had a lot of history before their, small, their stint in the Premiership and we know how difficult the Championship is. It's such a slog to get Bournemouth playing anywhere near the platform on which Rangers are playing that it's just I just don't agree with that at all I just don't think that makes any sense you're going to be I mean you're lucky if you come straight back up out of the championship and if you don't we can see how long it can take teams I mean it t- 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 took Leeds 19 years but you think well if they don't get back up first season then how long is it going to be and if they do you still think you're going to be a two three years before you've built a foundation to get them up competing Europa League teams and competing with the kind of teams that are in the top conversation in British football where Rangers are instantly in that conversation from the moment you're there and you're instantly playing in Europe and if it was any other country Rangers it wouldn't even be a conversation because it's a Europa League team that is playing in the Europa League against the top teams in the world that was any other country but it's because it's Scotland and people just aren't going to willing to give Scottish football any time of day they say oh well Bournemouth must be a bigger job but no Rangers are the most successful club of all time in terms of league victories they've won so much more than Bournemouth have ever won. And they are competing on a European level every single year. I don't even get how that is a conversation while Bournemouth aren't even a premiership side. Well, you've kind of preempted a question I was going to ask. Okay, so you, I was going to take the, the Scottish element out of it. Right now, who do you rather manage, Bournemouth or Panathinaikos? I'd say Panathinaikos. Because, like, well, it depends. It, well, it depends what your motivations are. Because... No, 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 because Panathinaikos are exactly the Greek equivalent of what Rangers are. Yeah, but I would say I would say Panathinaikos because of that European element. And if you can go and you can win European glory with Panathinaikos, then instantly your stock becomes massive as a as a manager. I guess the, re- the only reason you want to go to Bournemouth is because you'd want to challenge yourself in the Championship because it is such a unique league, as we have spoken about a lot over the last few weeks. Because you want to say, well, am I a good enough manager to go into that highly competitive league and all the transfer and financial things that surround it and probably one of the hardest leagues to win in all of football if you want to go and challenge yourself in that scenario and then and to grow as a manager then then yes go and do that but if you want to put up your stock 
and to manage at a high level at a big club with a big following, you've got Panathinaikos. Well, going back to the Rangers thing, well, we can use Panathinaikos and Rangers here. So one thing you said, I'm going to ask you two questions here. One thing you said was um, you want to be, in, I think it was you said the biggest market or the bigger market or, or bigger platform. You said something like, like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. Take, we'll just go back to the Rangers for this bit. Rangers might get, obviously, the old firm games and then a couple more games on, you know, TV, mainstream TV, whatever else, each year with how many people following it. Championship football, if you're a top-end championship football club, are you not in a bigger, whatever the word, I can't remember the word you said was, you're not in a bigger market, you're not a bigger, bigger audience, you're not a bigger, you know, you know, platform from a, from a TV perspective, from what's no, being out there? not at all, because you get one, maybe two championship games each weekend. And that's across 24 different teams where you get at least three, if not four Scottish games on TV each weekend across 12 teams, which pretty much guarantees if you're a Rangers or Celtic. But, but sorry to cut, but is that, but are you, but we live in Scotland. If, if, that's if, Sky if Sports. You, you, that's yeah. Sky Sports and BT Sports. So that's, that's the same no matter where you are. You don't get four, you don't get three or four. Scottish yes, you do. Orders. You get, you get one on the, well, you get one on the Saturday and two on the Sunday usually. Uh, well, maybe our listeners can tell if that's true or not. <laughs> but but then but even if it's if it's two, you get you get the Friday night championship game and you get the Saturday early kickoff. So even if it's two, which it is at least because you at least get the Saturday and the Sunday in Scottish football, you got the same. You've got that across twelve teams, not twenty four teams, and then you've got European teams on top of that. But then also if you go away from TV, Scotland has the highest percentage of fans per population turning up to football games every single Saturday, right? So there's more fans in football's in football stadiums in Scotland per population of the whole country than any other country in the world. So in terms of the percentage of the population of the country following what you are doing, it it's it's it is so underestimated how big football is in Scotland and how actually much it is a massive thing to your local nation, to your fans, to your people that surround you. And then we see what Brendan Rodgers did. You do well at Celtic, you get the chance to go to a Leicester who are a decent Premier League team and you can then excel. I'm going to stop you there. I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here. But Brendan Rodgers, I would suggest, wouldn't have been picked up by Leicester if he'd been a young Scot- or a Scottish manager who'd say, come from Motherwell, gone to Celtic, and then been picked up Leicester if he hadn't done what he'd done at Liverpool previously. I don't I do not yeah, but, believe but, 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 that but, but, I do not believe a Leicester would come in and go, such and such young Scottish manager, you know, uh, uh, say a uh, Robbie Nielsen, say he'd never been at Hearts and he'd gone to Celtic. I know that wouldn't have happened for all of you know uh, Hearts and Celtic listeners out there. But just someone like that who started, who did well in Scottish football, they don't want that Celtic, Leicester would not have come in and picked them up. Yeah, but this is Stephen Gerrard we're talking about. Steven yeah, yeah. Gerrard is on the platform to be, even if he hadn't been a Rangers, a Premier League team might have picked him up. I, I also don't think Brendan Rodgers would be where now if he hadn't taken the Celtic job because he would have just become one of the managers on the gravy train of England managers that just jump from club to club to club to club and never get anywhere. But he went away, he went to Celtic, he went to a different league, he went to a different, he went to a different place and he learned new skills, he learned new management techniques and he what created did amazing things which just put his stock through the roof and he got that the right opportunity for him when he took it where he just i think i actually think the best thing for eddie Howe right now would be to go abroad because if his if his first job in england doesn't go well he you could just see him falling into the kind of two-year cycles jumping between mediocre english clubs and never actually creating anything that's exciting for him again well either way It'd be a pretty good gig to manage one or the other, I think. And, and, I, and, I, and I would happily... I'm, have... I'm, and we can do both and we play football manager <laughs> in, in the evenings. We can, indeed. Anyway, well, I'm, sh- I'm sure out there you'll have uh, been, been shouting at one of us, agreeing or disagreeing, and telling the other one to shut up. But, you know, it's just the, the intriguing nature of sport uh, and, uh, and incredible that we, ha- we can have these debates. As ever, there was a number of things we didn't have time to talk about. So here's a look at what's gone on this week. Utility Players Weekly Roundup. In Rugby League, Super League returns in the UK. This Sunday saw the first game between St Helens and Catalan. St Helens won 34-6. In Sneaker, the Crucible is back, albeit later in the year than usual. Starting last Friday, we saw the first round of best of 19 frames match underway. But there'll be no bank holiday finish this time as it will go to conclusion on the 16th of August. In cricket, we saw England win the one-day international series against Ireland. 
Also in county cricket, the Bob Willis Trophy got underway with four-day county matches taking place against local rival counties. Just as you thought the football was over and the Premier League draws to a close, European football is back. The Europa League starts this Wednesday and Thursday before the Champions League takes centre stage on Friday and Saturday. And finally, in Major League Baseball, COVID is rearing its ugly head with a number of teams, including the Miami Marlins and the St. Louis Cardinals, having so many cases pop up in their clubhouse amongst their players that games have had to be cancelled or postponed. Really worrying signs when this American sport tries to get its feet up and running again. This week, we are joined by uh, former Scottish athlete, high jumper, Jane Nisbet. Uh, Jane was uh, part of Team Scotland for the home Glasgow Games in 2014, uh, having had to go through an extra hard journey to get there, uh, which I'm sure she's going to tell us all about. But Jane, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Also, I missed out there, and I'm sure you know, will remember this, but I believe you're also a Scottish indoor high jump record holder at some point uh, in 2012. Was it in your... your British Indoor Athletics Championships in Sheffield. Yes, it was. It was. I think it was two, in 2014. I actually broke the record that year. So it was like a big year, 2014. Brilliant. And uh, and was your record not broken not that late, not that much long after that by a by a colleague of yours? Did I see? Yes, it was literally like two weeks later. But I still hold the um, triple jump Scottish Junior triple jump record. So. That's like one I've still got in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you keep telling people. Of no, no. I'm like, oh, I've still got that one there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so Jane, for people who haven't followed uh, your story, uh, you know, certainly you've had some real challenges uh, when you were still competing. Jane, uh, who's very, very open about it, if anyone's ever seen some interviews she's done, struggled throughout her early parts of her career uh, and her junior career uh, with bulimia and eating disorders and really had to battle through a lot of hardship to come out on the other side of that. And, and it was amazing to see how I watched her live in, in Glasgow in 2014 competing. And I know it was a dream of hers. And Jane, I was just wondering, you know, what was that like? Obviously, it would be horrendously challenging times for you. But for our listeners out there, trying to sort of give them a, your perspective on how, how you went through that. Yeah, so Glasgow 2014 was the big, uh, big pinnacle moment for me. Like, not just obviously competing at a Commonwealth Games, but like marked for me, uh, end of a long journey of um, fighting back from different mental health issues that were based around having an eating disorder and the, the, all the stuff that comes with that. So yeah, my journey was like over a period of between six to uh, four to six years where when I turned 21, I'd had a really good like three years as a junior. And from that point, I basically just got really carried up in like, the elite world and became a massive, massive perfectionist something that I'm actually getting much better at, which is great. But I became this massive perfectionist around every area of my life that massively revolved around training, which led me down a very deep path to being highly bulimic for quite a long period of time. It was a very long recovery process. But when it was the 2010 Delhi Commonwealth Games, I was sitting at home on my 22nd birthday on my own in my flat because everyone else was competing at the Commonwealth Games trials and I should have been there and it was that was like a defining moment for me where I was like come on like do not let this hold you back any longer and took the steps to basically ensuring I fought back overcoming everything defying what everyone was saying and compete as a potential hopeful medalist at the Commonwealth Games. Well, that's amazing. And I think everyone will be kind of inspired that you were able to take that step. You were able to make that brave decision that you were going to fight back. And in terms of then that period of time between Delhi and then Glasgow, what did that look like? What did, were the steps that you had to go through to get yourself in the position to compete in Glasgow? It was quite like an up and down process. Like the last, obviously the last four years of my career were very injury like struck with some major injury blows, which I'll come on to. But 
the process initially was like identifying like how much I wanted it and I talk about it in my book uh, where I sat down with I got myself a new coach and we sat down and we like looked at all the steps towards getting back to just being healthy initially it was just like I just want to jump and I just want to qualify for the British champs and that was like the step one to get back and qualify again for the British champs and that was quite a long process especially the first year coming back from everything because it was like trying to learn I really learn how to eat correctly for fueling and um, your body properly for training and then also going back into an environment which is highly competitive on a day-to-day basis training at Loughborough just everyone everyone that's everyone is there so whether you're turning up to training everyone's in ridiculously good shape and you would just feel this like massive pressure and it's something that's actually been dealt with like at um, Loughborough and I but it, back like God, 10 years ago now feeling so old um <laughs> they <laughs> there was this big uh, stigma around around that side of competitiveness like for body shape and body image which has been obviously very much highlighted across all sports and something that's been like really well dealt with I think especially in the last like four years but that process was quite difficult it was like going back into an environment that you feel super uncomfortable with I had actually quit the sport for four weeks <laughs> where I was just like I don't want to do this anymore like why am I putting myself under this much pressure sort of thing and then when I was sitting in my flat on my 22nd birthday I was like no come on you've got more to give so we sort of created this strategy for the first year just to get back and be healthy and I actually had like 2011 was pretty much one of my best years I would even say to this day um where I just came back so strong I like one I qualified for the British Indoor Champs and that was like the first step forward and I got my first British medal that year um, and it was just like trying to manage everything because the process of overcoming an eating disorder isn't as straightforward as people hope it would be and everyone, it's quite a long journey because you're trying to rechange how your brain thinks about different things so the first year was just trying to like get it manageable so I was managing and like able to compete and then the second year I hadn't fully like identified some of the subconscious reasons why I was maybe going through what I was going through so I actually seeked private help um because I hadn't got I got kicked off funding that year (laughs) so that was quite difficult so I seek private help to get like to go and see a psychologist luckily at that point I'd actually set up my business in the process so when when I didn't get to Delhi I actually started bit like my PT business so I had money coming in the side so I self-funded that to see a psychologist and went through all the deep-rooted issues that were going on and then we created a strategy towards that and then unfortunately my second competition out of the season I did a jump and basically spiked through my ankle bone I mean, it was we not have to nice. There. We might have to pass out. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. we might have, to, might have to put out a graphic content warning at the start of this episode. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was just like one of those things you're like, oh my God, like you got back to a point and then boom, second competition in, you have injured yourself. And I was basically out for 12 weeks. So it was set me back for the whole summer. So I didn't compete again that summer. So that winter, I, well, basically I'd qualified done my qualifying hike for the Commonwealth Games that year um but because I'd only jumped once they were like no it's not it's not good enough to get you back onto funding so I was like great so (laughs) I fought back again that year so I did a really really intense winter where basically I think I spent most of my winter sessions in the pool because (laughs) I may as well have been a swimmer to be honest (laughs) (laughs) because I was just always seemed to like pick up a niggle and you're like all right get back in the pool again but I just always just get myself in really good shape like whenever I had a setback I always came back stronger and I kind of became known as the person that like doesn't matter what is sort of chucked at you you'll always like fight back and that's something I still stand to today I'm always like right any setback come on you can come back even stronger um, and then came in 2013 season and had a really strong indoor season but I felt there was like a couple of things that needed change in my training like in terms to advance me a bit further so I actually got a strength and conditioning coach and really worked on strength and conditioning which meant when I came out in the 2013 outdoor season I jumped 
the Commonwealth Games standard eight times by June. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, I am going to the Commonwealth Games <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, the week before British Champs, I had an accident in the gym and compression fractured my spine. Another setback, I was oh like, my oh God. my God. So, yeah, so from that point, I was like, right, come on. It was like another 16 weeks. I And then obviously with a back, well, a back fracture, you were sort of like, oh my God, like, are you coming back from this? And I was like, no matter what, I'm coming back. So the first competition out of the season, I literally attempted, so in January, I attempted a Scottish record. So <laughs> I jumped like an indoor PB and then attempted a Scottish record in the first competition back. And everyone was like, you are on a mission. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, but that was just like, obviously a whole thing of just changing up my strength and conditioning, trying to find like little tweaks here and there that I could to maximize my performance. And um, as Ali knows, I am the tall, like I'm tall, but I'm not like super tall. So as a high jumper, I really had to be so strong and light to ensure that I could jump as high as possible. Yeah, the, the sort of feedback from that was crazy. So I had like a super good indoor season, which put a bit of pressure on me, obviously leading into the summer season. And at that point as well, I'd openly spoken out about like a lot of my issues that I'd be facing and trying to just make it more positive for different others in sport. And at that point, I was getting a lot, I was getting inundated with young girls, like messaging me about their issues. And it became like a lot of pressure for me, um, which caused me to sort of, take a mini step backwards a little bit because of the stress I felt with that so we I actually came on social media because I was like I can't deal with the amount of pressure that I was going through so my coach was like take three weeks off and and you're not chucking away the season because of this so I actually only competed three times no four times that summer season including my Commonwealth Games um, final so it was like one of those like crazy, crazy seasons, but like actually the qualifying round of the um, Commonwealth Games was just one of those moments that like when I cleared the bar and it, it's a, like a quite an iconic image that I'm like literally like in the air like, yes. <laughs> and like, it was just one of those moments that you're like, I've done it. Like I've actually done it. And you're like, I can't believe this has happened, but I'm here, I've done it. And I've overcome everything. And you can't like it was just like this one of those moments that like you can do anything if you can do that you can do anything yeah and what was it like having that moment in glasgow as well obviously being a, a scottish athlete completing in your home country must have made that even that little bit more special it was insane like the stadium for all scottish athletes was mad like so mad like the noise that was there was insane um the final when your name got introduced was oh my god the, the actual grind was shaking it was crazy I was like okay <laughs> was not prepared for this <laughs> um, it was one of those moments that, like I guess you can never be prepared for that but um yeah it was uh, it was the most incredible feeling. it still gives me like shivers today like it was the most incredible feeling ever yeah well we one thing we're very proud of here in Scotland is, is our sports fans so I can totally understand yeah. why they were going mad for you but um you've talked about a few times there being in that professional sporting environment while you were struggling with eating disorders and, and you mentioned being in Loughborough made that really difficult because you're surrounded by all these amazing athletes and that's something I was, was wanting to ask about was how being in a sporting environment where you're kind of all your nutrition all your kind of health and body weight and all these things are highly recorded and are seen as key parts of being an athlete how being in that environment maybe prior to then when you started suffering from your eating disorders both affected it beforehand and also then while you were really suffering and at your worst yeah like it definitely I definitely got worse like when I moved to Loughborough so I actually studied in Stirling um and then moved on after my third year to Loughborough so my last year at Stirling now I was traveling to Loughborough once a month and like training for a week in Loughborough and then coming back and then being at uni in Stirling and then going back down so I was getting like introduced into that environment and actually being in Scotland that like, you're quite secluded from the elite British environment that goes on so it was I guess like that was quite tough and it was something I never experienced like my training group in Edinburgh were 
just also chilled out I'd be like how are you all so chilled out about what you eat like I'd be like sure I'm sure as an athlete you need to be doing this 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 and this but I think obviously I studied sports science at uni as well so we looked into sports nutrition and I think at that point when I was studying that like it made me over analyze everything so we like looked down to the smallest percentages that you could maybe improve but then taking that into the Loughborough environment it just almost makes everything explode and like I, I analyze things now when I like can see traits of, on different people it's like I can see if they're suffering in some way shape or form just by like how they react to one food um, and so on so I think like when I look back now it's like you can see so clearly how rife it was like with a lot of different people having like body image issues maybe not like a complete diagnosed eating disorders but there's so many different levels of eating disorder that like you don't sometimes you don't even realize that you have one but you're just super super strict with it and yeah I had so many of those traits for so long but I never until I start like moved to Loughborough it never really escalated until that point obviously you now can speak about it and and you went through a whole load of stages uh, with it do you think as you say it is it is more rife uh, and there is more athletes out there who are suffering with uh, this you know how much of a a sort of systemic issue do you reckon this is in professional sports and and maybe particularly in the women's game I I know for example in in cricket there's an Australian cricketer Sarah Coates who had to quit the game because of her difficulties with anxiety and mental health and, and eating disorders and and do you you know there's some very brave people coming out and speaking about it more and it's it's more okay to talk about these things now but how much do you reckon it is a sort of systemic issue in in professional sport um i think now it's something that's very much being dealt with 10 years ago it was something that seemed so like it was brushed under the carpet a little bit like people didn't really understand the true effects of what an eating disorder was and like what the recovery processes were but in general society now anyway like not just in sports there's obviously much more awareness around it anyway so people might open up about that so like lots of governing bodies now like Scottish Athletics were one of the first actually to do a like evening on how to deal with eating disorders in sports and I like went in part from like a coaching perspective and they had a psychologist come in and talk about it and like how coaches can deal with it and how you can identify different areas like different stigmas from athletes and look at like their behaviors and make sure that you are dealing with things properly because I think that is something that people are really afraid of and they almost like that's why they don't address the issue and don't talk about it because they're so worried that you don't want to put a label on it sort of thing and it's like knowing how to address that issue so I think like now it's like making coaches more aware of like how to deal with the situation and identify it and actually encouraging athletes to be more open and knowing that it's not not something to be ashamed about it's something that's it it happens and you can deal with it and you can overcome it and it doesn't define you it like having it identifying it and knowing that you've you've overcome something like that only is going to make you stronger and you can live a normal life after yeah for sure and i'm sure that you saying that will be great for people who are struggling to hear and the way you've come back from your eating disorder and to be so successful is a fantastic story i think now in your position with with like the joy of hindsight what would you say now to young athletes who are maybe in the last few years at school or coming out of school and looking to progress with their career but are very anxious about what they're eating, about their weight, about how they're meant to look as an athlete and particularly young female athletes who are more prone to struggling with issues around their eating and their weight and their body image. What would you be advice to young athletes now today having gone through what you've gone through? Um, that's like really interesting question. I think on hindsight like for me like when I I actually coached a younger athlete for um post Commonwealth Games and it was just like make sure that you're doing the things that you enjoy as well as doing sport like even if you have this goal to be an Olympic like going to Olympics going to Commonwealth Games never like make sure you're still doing the things that you enjoy and otherwise like the need to be perfectionist in different areas will happen and also you'll end up just regretting a lot of things which will cause like these controlling behaviors that happen in, like later on 
don't be so hard on yourself. I think as we grow up, and especially now there's like so much going on, I can't even imagine, like we obviously had a bit of a social media generation, but not anywhere near like the pressures that youngsters go through now to look like people on social media, like social media isn't real. Um, and most people portray the best aspects of their life. They don't portray the real aspects. So like literally take social media with a pinch of salt to an extent especially that with your friends and so on and just know that like you don't nothing needs to be perfect 100% of the time having like one bad day doesn't make you a bad athlete um, and it doesn't mean that you need to beat yourself up about things or if something doesn't go as planned you don't need to think like oh my god I need to lose weight or I need to try and eat less fat less carbs like I, I remember I went through this phase where I was like oh I didn't win an award <laughs> and I was like right I'm gonna cut out fat on my diet it was like so irrational like you just need to think rationally about stuff and if you ever need support always go to a professional to just like find out to talk to them and never be afraid or and never be ashamed of that because that's what professionals are there for well it's you know I've said it before and we'll say it again Paul it's amazing the journey you've been on to to get through what you did and and still compete at the highest level um but what you have you've mentioned a couple of times as well about setting up your PT business doing a bit of coaching obviously you've retired from competing now uh, a lot of the guests we've had so far we, we've asked them you know what what does life after sport look like and and how prepared for you for that are you and, and you've made that transition and I know you've done yeah. some work as an author and you've done some PT stuff you've done some you know positive uh, you know mind and body speaking you know what what's that transition look like how hard was it to move from sport into life after sports and uh, and what is it you're doing with yourself now one of actually one of my passions now is to try and get something together to help athletes transition from sport into career so that is something that in the moment is like I'm on like a bit of a pipeline for the next couple of years I'm not 100% sure how I'm going to implement it but it's something that I'm super passionate about because I've seen so many of my friends and like different athletes that work and beating around about the same time really struggle to make that transition. And you see it all the time in professional sport. Like if you, there's no steps to tell you like, how do you live like a normal person <laughs> when you're not like competing on the circuit every weekend? Like life for me, like the transition was quite, I was quite lucky and fortunate. So the four years obviously prior I was struggling, well, obviously didn't compete the Commonwealth Games, so I set up my PT business. So my focus initially post the Commonwealth Games was to focus on building that, and I did that really successfully. But I also witnessed, obviously, other people around me that maybe retired at the same time, didn't have such a smooth transition. I think the key thing is, is like, don't put pressure on yourself to be at a specific point. For me, like even now, I like look at other people my age and I'm like, oh, I wish I was like at their point in their career. If I'd got to their point in their career, I could be doing this. And I'm like, no, like, because actually you've done all of these different things. Like you've competed the Commonwealth Games, you've written a book, you've done this. Actually, you've got to do all the things that you, that you want to do in terms of like passions and so on and so forth and actually work out what it is in the long run where you want to end up sort of thing and I think um obviously my like thing sat in I've sat in fitness for the last how many years has it been six years since Commonwealth Games and I've moved through different managed like to management now and I manage coaches online and I help develop coaches to run their own business and that's so exciting amazing but I would say like I'm still on a bit of a journey to like find out exactly what it is like my end point is but I think everything that you learn along the way is only there to help develop you make you better in whatever you do so my journey's been interesting and exciting and I think I'm still on a journey to really identify like what it is my passion completely lies yeah well i think we should start a feature on the podcast where you talk to our, our athlete guests about how they should um <laughs> how they should carry on in their career maybe you can become the utility players agony ant in the future yeah. oh my god that'd be so much fun <laughs> <laughs> so well, well we'll see what we can organize for next week but um yeah. you mentioned that you you wrote a book there do you want to tell us a bit more about what the book is about and potentially why people should read it if they haven't heard of it or haven't read it yet 
Yeah, so my book Freed is basically about my journey to freedom. Um, it is called Freed ED because ED is a shortening for eating disorders. But the reason I called it Freed is like I genuinely felt when I reached that pinnacle point um, at the Commonwealth Games that it just felt like this whole weight off my shoulders sort of thing. And the veneer was just mad. And basically what the book, why I wrote the book was, as I said previously, I was really struggling the year of the Commonwealth Games to deal with the amount of inundated, I was getting inundated with girls messaging me and I was like, I can't help everyone. It was just becoming like, this one of these things I felt really sad that I couldn't. So I was like, right, how am I going to help a number of people rather than just being able to help one or two? And then again, it only helps one or two. It means that I just have this way of being able to help more people. So the book is basically about a step-by-step journey from my worst point and I talk about it like the day of doom to like the pinnacle point and it's like seven steps towards getting to that point so it obviously I utilize like my experiences along the way but the book's very much not about me it just uses my experiences and I interviewed different um, people not just from sport but on like addictions and mental health and where they were at to actually get some of their solutions towards it but it isn't a science-based book it is purely an experience-based book I always have to say that mm-hmm. but yes um it's just it's basically it gives you different tasks to do in each chapter as well to identify where you're currently at and create strategies to move forward to the next step so whether you are suffering from an eating disorder whether you're suffering from mental health whether you're just suffering from like stress or you're really like stuck you can use the steps to basically take you like forward and have a bit of a breakthrough so that is what the book is key about but the main reason was to try and help create more awareness towards eating disorders and also just enable me to help more people. And do, and do you still have people contact you kind of individually, young girls, young athletes contact you at all, you know, even though you sort of moved on or, or is the book kind of done, done what you were looking for and it's got of a, a, a more open way for it to reach more people? I actually, so I'm actually doing some stuff with Netball Scotland at the moment regarding like that side of stuff with like mental health and eating disorders and positive body image so like the book more than anything it has helped me obviously do mass market like get more people not mass market that sounds horrendous get more get the word out <laughs> to more people and helping more people but i do get every so often i will get uh, people messaging me but i guess my like my main focus is probably switched more away from i feel like i've created that awareness and i've done my my thing and I've made sports more aware of eating disorders and that side of stuff's in play so I've moved more away towards and even my social media like towards like empowerment and finding yourself and that's why I'm like moving more towards the route of trying to help athletes transition out of sport. Yeah, well, it's amazing that the journey you went on uh, yourself and amazing the sort of work you're doing to help, to help other people. And uh, you can only say, you know, well done and, and keep going with that. But um, it's now time to move on to the biggest challenge of your career, which is running the, the utility players gauntlet of questions. OK, so 45 <laughs> seconds of random questions coming your way. Uh, you know, it'll be, is, there, it, is there like a scoring thing on this? Like, is it to get as many questions as possible? Or? Well, yeah, well do it that way if you want, but, but it's just... It's it's just to get a bit more insight into what Jane Nisbet really thinks, you know, about some random <laughs> things and some questions that may never be answered, okay? So. Okay. There's no time to run the gauntlet. Did aliens land at Roswell? No. <laughs> what came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, the chicken. <laughs> Best friend's character. <laughs> Best friend's <laughs> character. Ross. Truth or dare? Truth. Uh, is Jägerbomb always a good idea or always a bad idea? Always a bad idea. <laughs> uh, best Adam Sandler movie? Happy Gilmore. Uh, Jurassic Park, could it happen? I mean, why not? <laughs> the world is a mad place these days. Black or red? Black. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Socks and sandals, what's up with that? It's a bit, yeah, a bit out there, isn't it?
Well, that wasn't too stressful, was it? No, it wasn't at all. It was quite fun. <laughs> I, I, never, I never would have chosen Ross as the best friend character. Like, I like Ross, don't get me wrong, but I feel like he doesn't offer as much as some of the others. But, I just, but we don't, we don't, don't judge him. We don't judge him. nowhere. I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> so you didn't even know that Ross was your favourite until then. I was like, oh, I did not expect that to even come out of my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This and this is the beauty of the of questions. You find out about yourself as much as the listeners do. So, yeah, which is great. Okay, Jane, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really, really thank appreciate you. you being so open and 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 sort of giving our listeners a real perspective and some of the challenges that that you've had to go through. And um, and we wish you all the best uh, with your you know continuing going through your transition and working out what life after sport and your next career looks like and. Um, and uh, thank you so much for your time once again. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, Rory. Incredible to hear Jane's story. You know, we, we talk about sacrifices and trials and tribulations and, and, and what sort of athletes and officials we spoke to have to go through. But what, what a dark place she must have been in. And to come back and, and achieve her goal after every setback is just, it, it blows your mind. Yeah, for sure. I think we talk a lot about, as you said, fantastic achievements and what people have achieved in the world of sport. But we often talk about them well, like, oh, they were the they were the underdogs going into the competition and they did so well to win. And actually to have overcome such a mental hurdle and such a kind of mental and physical real life issue to to just to get to a final. And that's what I loved. She was so happy to get to a final. It wasn't about winning a gold. It was defeating her demons. It was about getting herself into a place where she was healthy, both mentally and physically, and she could get to a Commonwealth Games final and, and take that moment for her and her career and, and her recovery. I think it was just fantastic to hear about. Well, we've run on a little bit longer uh, as we got sort of into a bit of the heat of the battle talking about management there. So we're not going to have time for our top threes this week. Next week, we'll be having our, uh, our top three sporting events uh, or, or matches or, or fixtures or or tournaments that we would like to go and watch live that we haven't had the opportunity to but uh, as i say we'll, we'll push that to next week as ever i've been ali and he's been roy with the utility players and we hope to see you next week and everyone stay safe